been studying Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. In a sermon study, I have titled, The Heart of Kings. Last week, David slayed Goliath. Last week, David became a hero in the eyes of the people of Israel. He was willing to trust God when no other man would. He was willing to stand up when no other man would stand up. And that's where we pick up our story in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 50. Let us pray. Father, we love You. We thank You, God, for how good You have been. Father, it is an honor to be called the sons and daughters of God. Lord, it's an honor to know You in the free pardon of sin, Lord. God, to be partakers of the divine mercy and grace that You give. Lord, tonight, this, or this day, we pray, Lord, that God, You deal with our hearts. God, that You would encourage us. God, that You would challenge us. Lord, that You'd speak to us. Lord, God, that if there be any that need to be saved, that You'd save them today. God, I humbly acknowledge, Lord, that I am nothing without You. God, that every good thing that has ever been done has been done by Your power and Your strength. So, Lord, I ask again this morning that You would anoint me to preach Your Word in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. God, that Your Spirit would move upon our hearts in power. God, that You would change us from the inside out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 50, we pick up where we left off last week. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Verse At the end of verse 51, it says, When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. So the Philistines flee because their champion has died. And then we see that now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. Look back at chapter 14 in verse 22. We see something similar happen. Or excuse me, 32 and 33. And the people rushed on the spoil. Wait a second. No, it's 22. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. Can I tell you that everybody's willing to be part of the fight when the enemy's on the run? Everybody's willing to get excited about what God is doing when the enemy has turned its back and ran and is on the run. That's an exciting time to be part of the winning team. Uh, many of you have heard me uh, reference recently, anybody wants to be on the Super Bowl team when the Super Bowl team is winning. But being willing to be faithful in the hard times, being willing to be the David who says, I'll go fight the giant if all the people in the world won't, being willing to say, I'm going to stand up for God, I'm going to do what is right no matter what the rest of the world does, no matter what the rest of the church does, being willing to be faithful and committed to God when it seems like you're losing the battle is a whole different ball game. And brothers and sisters, we must learn to be faithful at all times. Let us not be people 
who are tossed to and fro. One day we're serving God, the other day we're, we're, we're down in the dumps and we're not going to serve God and we're not going to be faithful to God. One day we're on the winning team and we're all excited because everything looks good. But then when the slightest thing comes around and people are fearful and it looks like maybe the enemy's not so scared anymore, you run and you hide and you say, I don't want any part of this. I'm going to go back to the cave until the enemy's on the run again. Listen, guys, anybody can stand when the whole world is running away. But God wants us to come to the place where we're willing to stand for truth. We're willing to be faithful to God in the good times and in the bad times. When it feels like we're winning and when it feels like we're losing, we must learn to be steadfast unmovable, unshakable, willing to stand for what is right, willing to look the devil right in the eyes and say, I'm not turning around, I'm not backing down, I'm not going anywhere, I'm going to serve God till the bitter end, no matter what comes my way, because He is my God. So, of course, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted. Can I say there is a time for rising and shouting? There is a time for being grateful for what God is doing. There is a time for being excited about what God is doing. <clears throat> but I want to be the type of man that's faithful no matter what. That's serving God no matter what I go through. Guys, we go through seasons in life. Did you know that? We do. We, we go through seasons in life. Sometimes you feel like you're on the mountain. Sometimes you feel like you're in the valley. Sometimes you feel like you're somewhere in between. Sometimes it feels like God is so close that if you close your eyes, you can just reach out and touch Him. Sometimes it feels like God's so far away that if you had the Hubble telescope and you searched the entire universe, you wouldn't see the, the slightest hint of Him anywhere. But He's just as close as He's always been. He's the omnipresent God who's in all places at all times and who changes not. We go through seasons of life when... We're excited about where we're at in life. We're excited about the, the new things that we're facing. And, and then sometimes we plateau out and we feel like, well, you know, all of a sudden everything turned gray. Life is full of seasons, but we must learn to be committed to our God no matter what. I was thinking, as, as uh, I referenced sort of in the my intro, we're talking about our seven-year vision. And I was just thinking about all that God has done over the last seven years. You know, we've had some good times. We've had some hard times. We've had some times when everything made sense. and times when things didn't make sense. But through it all, we've just had to trust God. You know, one of the healthiest things you can do as a Christian is learn that you need a Christian family. You need to be regularly encouraged and equipped and taught the Word of God. And one of the healthiest things you can do is just get connected with your family. And you need to learn to see the church, by the way, as a family. It is a family. The Bible calls it the family of God. You know what that means? It's a family. Sometimes your brothers annoy you a little bit. Sometimes you have knock-down, drag-out fights. Sometimes people say things that, that, that you don't like, and sometimes there's certain people in the family you just don't get along with, but you know what? It's family. And at the end of the day, you're still family, and you still got each other's backs, and you still love each other, and you love God, and you want to see God do what's best in everybody's life around you. If you really understand, this is my family. The, 
you know, in the first century, they didn't have what we have now. And it's to our detriment, trust me. They didn't have a church located right here, and then two blocks over another church, and then 200 yards over from that another church, and then 200 yards from that another church. You know there are four churches within a two-block radius of here? Now, we cannot change that. Uh, that's the culture we live in. It's just we were born into it. But, you know, you used to have to get along. There used to be a church of Derby, a church of Coloss, a church of, you know, where there, there was one church. And, and if you're a Christian, that's where you went. And I can assure you, in those churches, they had problems too. But it's the church. It's where I belong. It's where I have to go. Nowadays, if you get offended, if somebody looks at you wrong or doesn't shake your hand or the preacher says one thing that you think eh, that could be interpreted a different way, people are just flighty. I mean, they're just at one place this year, another place the next year, another place the year after that. Now, there's a time and a place for leaving. If there's immorality, if there is sin that's unrepented of coming from the leadership, and you've tried to deal with it and it's just refused to be dealt with, but I can assure you of this, about 90% of the people that go from church to church, that's not the reason they go. They go because they're offended. They go because they're not committed to the family of God. And one of the healthiest things we can do is understand we're a family. I was thinking about this as I was just kind of thinking about our church and the future of the church. I thought, you know, well, I'm a pastor. But even if I wasn't a pastor, one of the things I'd love to be able to say is that I belonged to the same church my whole life. That I was committed to a local body my entire life. And that I played a role in helping that local body be the body of Christ to a lost and dying world. I don't even know where that came from. I think that's, part of, that's still some of the, the vision that's uh, coming out of me. But nonetheless, David prevails over the Philistine. I've got to move this morning. And we see David now, all of a sudden, the people like David. And the Bible says in verse 2 that Saul took him. That's David that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Saul liked David so far. David was very helpful to Saul. He got rid of Saul's enemy, the Philistine giant Goliath. Uh, he played the harp very well when Saul was distressed. And so far, Saul does not see David as a threat. So he finally decides, I'm not ever going to let him go home. I used to let him go home a little bit, and then when I needed him, I'd have him come play the harp. But now the people like this guy, and he's a pretty decent guy, and he's a giant slayer, and he plays the harp well, so... He's going to stay at my place all the time. In verse 5, it says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. I want you to think for a moment about the interesting dynamic right now between David and Saul. David knows that he's been anointed by Samuel. He's been close enough to Saul to see a little bit of Saul's selfishness and a little bit of Saul's psychotic behavior. He's fixing to see it full blown, the glasses are going to come off, and he's going to see Saul for who he really is. But right now, Saul wants David around because David is helpful to Saul. And David does whatever Saul sent him to do. He behaved wisely. David's greatest test of faith was now bigger than Goliath. Serving Saul would be his next test of faith, and a much more difficult one as well. 
learning to serve those who could be dangerous to you is a serious test of faith. It is our desire to distance ourselves from everybody that has anything that we feel like could be detrimental to us. The Bible does say to love your enemies. The Bible does say to do good to those who spitefully use you, to bless those who persecute you. And we see that David was in a position that was outside of his control. So it was obvious that God was, had placed him there. David had not worked to get into that place, and so any danger that he was facing was, was simply a result of him being where God wanted him to be. Can I tell you this, that at times, brothers and sisters, you might be smack dab in the middle of God's will for your life, and it still feels dangerous. And there are still certain things that could threaten you. There are still certain things that could threaten your safety. And learning to be faithful to God in that time, learning to be faithful to God's people in that time, and the authorities even at times that God has placed in your life. Sometimes you might have a crazy boss. You might have a crazy mom or dad. You might have any crazy authority figure in your life. And yet you still need to show the respect that you can show. You need to be faithful to God. You need to be faithful to God's call on your life and behave wisely. And David did just that. Now we begin to see this is the turning point of Saul's relationship with David. I'm going to go ahead and read just four verses. Verses 6 through 9 of chapter 18. So now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. I want to preach on Saul the rest of this morning if I can. Saul begins to go crazy. He heard the song that David has slain his thousands, but Saul, or his ten thousands, and Saul's only slain his thousands, and all of the sudden he was ready to destroy David. I want you to read an interesting proverb, uh, Proverb 27 21. Proverbs 27 21. Here's what it says. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold and a man is valued by what others say of him. If you have your Bible, that word is valued is in italics because it doesn't actually exist. It simply says, and a man by what others say of him. The same way that the refining pot brings the impurities out of silver, the same way that the fire brings the impurities out of gold, so does praise to a man. Notice that these women were praising David. 
not David's God. Now, we see that David, unlike Saul, didn't think too much of it. Nothing's even said at all about what David thought of the matter. But Saul was jealous that some man was being praised more than he was. You see, praise will reveal what is in a man by his reaction to it or lack thereof. Praise will either reveal a man's humility or reveal his pride and desire for glory. Saul could not stand the thought of somebody else being praised more than him. One of the things that we see right now, and we're going to watch it over the next couple of weeks, I pray that God will give you spiritual discernment into this truth. There are two kings in all of us. There's the king of the flesh that wants to be on the throne and wants to be in control, that just like Saul, hates it when anything threatens us, hates it to think there might be somebody who's getting more praise than us, hates to think that we might not be on top of the mountain. And then there's the king, the godly king, the man after God's own heart, who realizes that really we're nothing without God, that God alone needs to get the praise and glory, that I need to to, to die out to myself. And these two kings, they constantly wage war against one another. And learning to become the man or woman of God that God wants each and every one of you to be, we must learn how to control this battle. We must learn how to let the Saul that is in each of us Die. And let the humility of a heavenly king that has authority and reign and the anointing of God and the power on our lives to do what God has called us to do, yet learning to function in that in humility. And when Saul heard that David would be in praise more than him, he couldn't handle it. Does it bother you when other people get praised? Does it bother you when... Maybe somebody at your work who does the same job you do. You overhear your bosses talking about how great that person does. But you know that uh, maybe a little thing about them or two that everyone else does. And then it bothers you that they're praised. Does it bother you that somebody else, you know, might be doing a certain thing in the church that you feel like you could do better? Our hearts are wrong and they are jealous when we have a difficult time letting other people be praised. And in verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day forward. Saul became insanely jealous of Israel's new hero. But in verse 14, David continued to behave wisely in all of his ways. And the Lord was with him. And therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merah. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Verse 21, Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Verse 25, Thus Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of Philistines. 
So Saul has a plan now. Here's Saul's first plan to kill David. Saul's response to the people praising David is to kill him, to get rid of him. Saul saw him as a threat to his own kingdom. But he thought to himself, well, the people liked David quite a bit. He was a giant killer. All the people were singing about him. And I want them to praise me. So if I kill him, that's going to look pretty bad. So i got a plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give my, wife, my daughter to be his wife. But I know David's a man of integrity. And David won't just say, well, sure. He's a man of humility. David will say something like, who am I to be the king's son-in-law? Which is exactly what David did. And he said, then I'll say that you need to bring a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Saul thought to himself, he might be able to take down one giant, but there ain't any way he's going to kill a hundred of them. And that fool will go out and he'll try to do it. The Philistines will kill him off and I'll have David out of my life. This is his first plan. It's a murderous, devilish, evil plan. I mean, we begin to see Saul's life just unravel now. Brothers and sisters, can I just say, honestly, Lord, open our hearts this morning. There's a little bit of salt in every one of us. If we are not careful, we'll desire certain people who we think are our enemies, who we think are against... David was not his enemy, by the way. People that we think are a threat to us, that are dangerous, we'll find ways to assassinate them. Now, we might not be like Saul and have the authority to carry out all the things and bring about a literal murder, but we do it in our heart. And we might not be able to bring about a physical death, but we'll certainly attempt a character assassination. We'll find ways to say things about people and to position ourselves and to position them in every negative light possible, hoping... That, that, that eventually everybody will, will see something negative about a person and not like them. And then once they're not liked, they're no longer a threat to us. We have to be very careful about that. We need to understand that we have to trust God with our lives. And that we don't have the business of, of playing God and trying to destroy people whom we think need destroyed. Saul has this plan. I'm going to have him killed. But in verse 27, David arose and went. He and his men, and he killed 200 men of the Philistines, brought their foreskins, and gave them in full account to the king. And in verse 28, it says, Saul knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. So Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. So much to say here. Saul knew that God was with David, so he feared David all the more. I want you to remember something about Saul. Saul was God's anointed king. You remember that? At one time in Saul's life, he had a pretty humble heart. He thought to himself, who am I to be king? At one time in Saul's life, he didn't think nothing of the fact that he was a head taller than everybody else. At one time in Saul's life, he was a good leader who fought for what was righteous, who cared for what was right, who was concerned about the things of God and, and, and lifting up God's holy name. But something has changed in Saul. Now Saul has got this murderous plan to kill David, 
And what's worse, he knows that God is with him. Now, all of a sudden, he doesn't care what God wants. He doesn't care what God has approved of. He doesn't care what God has chosen. And he's willing to go to any extent to extinguish anything that could threaten his will for his life. You know what the lesson is today? Sin's a lot worse than we think it is. Unrepented sin is a dangerous, 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 dangerous thing. It's worse than we think it is. The heart begins to get hardened. You begin to think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it, right? You know, it's just the preacher who gets up there and preaches on sin because he has to, because that's his job. Listen to me. If the police force in this community and Wichita all went on strike, something bad happened and the whole world began looting and breaking into Walmart and breaking into the buildings and taking what they wanted, and there was never going to be any way to punish the people who took it. There was never going to be record of who broke in and looted. There was never going to be any type of, of, of punishment ever handed down for people that broke in and took from everything. It would still be wrong. And it is still stealing. Sin is sin regardless of if the whole world is doing it. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter even if in the church we become lethargic about sin and there seems to be a callousness about what is right and what is wrong. Sin is still sin. And when we don't see it for what it really is, and when we downplay it in our lives, we become like Saul and we, we, we behave wickedly and yet think nothing of it. We, we plot things we shouldn't plot. We do things we shouldn't do. We don't do things we should do. And we live lives of sin and we're callous to it. Just like Saul became and we don't think there's any problem at all. But maybe a small problem. It's just a small problem, right? Everybody has problems. And the reality is Saul's life is unraveling before his very eyes and he can't even see it himself. Saul thinks that if he'll dig his heels in a little bit further and just resist a little bit longer, then his enemies will be destroyed. Then he'll be the man God wants him to be. Then he'll get things corrected. Then he'll position himself the way he's supposed to position himself. But not until then. Listen to me, my friend. There will always be a then in your life. There will be. If you are waiting to serve God until then, there will always be another then. There will always be a reason. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Now, David's got half, you know, he's got the people loving him, he's got the king hating him. And I just tell you a reality, my friends. Nobody's ever going to like everything you do. Nobody's ever going to be behind every decision you make. Nobody's ever going to praise you and lift you up and exalt you all the time and everybody's not going to do what's right. 
You've got to be willing to serve God anyways. And you need to know that the children of God inherit the enemies of God. There's a price to be paid with leadership. There's a price to be paid with authority. But there's just a price to be paid simply for being a Christian. You might truly repent of your sins, become a blood-bought, born-again Christian, fall in love with God, and, 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 and you're, not, you're not doing the wrong things anymore, and you're not lying, and you're not cutting people down, and you're not being deceitful, and you're not being wicked, and, and, and on the other hand, you're being a man or woman of integrity, and you're, and you're loving people, and you're being selfless, and you'll find, guess what? Everybody in your family is not going to come alongside and clap their hands and say, good job. They'll try to knock you down. They'll try to discourage you. They'll try to throw water on your fire. Listen, you've got to stand up for God and be faithful to God anyways. Now, in verse 19, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Saul finally makes his hatred and his wickedness public. Now, no doubt the people had seen his psychotic behavior. But Saul actually gets brave enough to, to share people with his, his plans with people. He says to all of his servants and his son that they should kill David. So Jonathan and David get together in verses 2 through 9 and they come up with a plan to turn David back to Saul and, and to change Saul's heart. Jonathan goes to his dad. He tries to talk a little bit of wisdom into his dad. He basically says, Dad, David's never did you anything wrong. David went and fought the giant. David's never lifted his hand against you. He's never did a wicked thing against you. What are you thinking? Saul says, you're right, son. You're right. I don't know what I'm thinking. Bring him back in and I'll treat him right. Here's the problem. Man's schemes can't change another man's heart. Jonathan and David thought that they got together and had a little bit of plan and had Jonathan go talk to Saul that he could work all things out. Can I say something just quite honestly? When somebody's heart is wrong, when somebody has made the conscious decision, you've got to remember, Saul made the conscious decision to dig his heels in, to sin against God, to disobey God, to break the rules as he felt best. You're not going to be able to reason with that person. Because there's a heart problem that needs fixed. There's a heart problem they refuse to acknowledge. And Saul says, you know what, you're right, bring him back in. But the moment that David's brought back into Saul's presence, Saul's heart begins to become torn inside of him and all he can think about is killing him. And we see his first attempt to do it himself in verse 10 of chapter 19. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. So first he throws a spear to try to kill the man in front of everybody. And David gets out of the way and takes off. I'm telling you, the story takes a mad twist now. Saul has just gone crazy. Then he sends messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. David escapes there. Verse 18, David fled and escaped. Verse 10, David fled and escaped. 
Chapter 20 and verse 1, then David fled. In the first three verses of chapter 20, David goes to Jonathan. He says, I thought you said your dad wasn't going to kill me. Jonathan says, my dad wouldn't kill you. He told me he wouldn't. David said, your dad is lying to you. And he hasn't told you the truth because he knows that you like me. And so now they come up with another plan. Jonathan says, okay, well, you're supposed to be at my dad's place for supper here coming up on the new moon. And so you don't show up. And if my dad gets furious about it, I'll know that my dad wants to kill you and that he's lying to me. And if that's the case, I'll shoot arrows a certain way. It'll be the sign to you that you're just going to have to go and that, that my dad wants to kill you. And if my dad doesn't do that, I'll shoot arrows another way, and then you'll know that you're safe. So they execute their plan, and David's out hiding, and, and uh, Jonathan's at dinner with his father, and the first day, Saul just thinks to himself, well, maybe David's not here because he's ceremonially unclean. The second day, though, he knows that something's up. I want you to look in verse 30 of chapter 20 as I close today. Saul realized something was going on. And Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him. By which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. I want you for a moment to enter in to this story with me. They're sitting around the table, eating. It's dinner time. And Saul looks at his own son, his firstborn. Jonathan was his oldest. And basically says, you traitor. We ought to kill that man. Jonathan's trying to speak sense to his dad. He's saying, Dad, why should we kill him? What has he done? Saul tries to pour some of his poison in Jonathan's heart and says, your throne, Jonathan. He'll take your throne. You see, Saul was terrified about losing his throne. Now he tries to take some of that terror that turned his heart wicked and pour it into his son. It's all about selfishness. And Saul becomes so angry, he picks up a spear and he throws it at his own son to kill his own son. And as he launches it, Jonathan moves out of the way. That spear comes hurled by him, sticks itself in the wall, and Jonathan leaves. How did we get here? What kind of a dinner meeting is that for a family to have? Imagine what's running through Jonathan's mind. 
He watched his dad rise to the kingdom. He knew his dad when his dad was still humble. When his dad was overwhelmed by the fact God would ever do anything with him, let alone choosing to be the king. He knew the story of his dad's bravery and and heroism. When he went after Nahash the Ammonite and destroyed them utterly. And then bit by bit, he watched his dad slip away. First, his dad became prideful and just wanted to elevate his own glory. Refused to destroy all the enemies that God told him to destroy, but kept the best of everything to increase to his wealth. He watched his dad kind of become a coward and just want to protect himself. Where once he was brave and said, let's go fight Nahash the Ammonite. Now he just sits on his throne and says, well, we'll just let Goliath mock. I'm not going out there. What if I lose? He watched him become psychotic to the point of coming up with a plan to kill his best friend. Jonathan and David were best friends. He tried to talk sense into his dad. His dad wouldn't have it. Finally, his dad erupts and tries to murder his own son. Saul's life is a life of warning. Saul thought he could get away with sin. It sure looked like he was, didn't it? He's still king, isn't he? He's still calling the shots, isn't he? He still has people under his control, doesn't he? Sure looks like Saul's in great control, but really his life is spiraling out of control. Sin will destroy us, people. Unrepented sin is a dangerous, devilish thing. We cannot excuse it away. I can assure you this without any hesitation whatsoever. I can guarantee that at the beginning of Saul's reign, at the beginning of Saul's ministry, when Samuel had anointed him, when when, 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 when all this excitement about what God was doing in their family was happening and Jonathan was, was a young lad, probably in his early teens, and was excited about his dad and, and, and all that looked ahead of him, the fact that one day Jonathan would probably get the throne. And they were excited and they loved God. Nobody in their wildest imaginations ever would have dreamed there would be a dinner meeting down the road with Saul being psychotically jealous, devil-possessed, ready to kill anybody that stood in his way, even his own son. Because that's where sin takes us. It is a serious warning to us this morning. It's a slow fade. It's just one thing at a time. Just a little bit of sin until you feel comfortable with that. And then you feel like, well, you know what? There really weren't any consequences for that. I'm still king. Let's push the bar a little bit more. And you, and you keep upping the, the, the rebellion against God. You keep upping your sin in your life. And, and you look around and see if there's any consequences. And you think that somehow you beat the game. You haven't beat the game. Saul's life is unraveling and eventually Saul would die on the battlefield. Because he refused to repent. And in the meantime, in verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, 
and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. We see David takes the official stance of running for his life. For the next nearly seven years, we're going to continue to study it. David's running for his life. Sound like much of a life for the anointed king of God to you? you got to understand something, my friends. When God has placed His mark on you and called you to be His child, there's a bullseye on your back. And sometimes it comes from the most unlikely people. And now Saul would chase David as our worship team comes. Saul would be on a madman's mission to kill God's anointed. This morning, is there sin in your life that's keeping you from being who God wants you to be? Can I say as candidly, as compassionately as I can, sin wants to destroy you. There is no good in sin whatsoever. And when we don't address our sin, when we sweep it under the carpet and think that we can live above it, it will eventually come back to haunt us and to destroy us. It doesn't matter if you have the whole world fixed. It doesn't matter if you have the whole world tricked. It doesn't matter if you have your family, as Saul did, in control. It doesn't matter if you think she'll never leave. He'll never do this. My kids are going to be this way or that way. You cannot continue in sin and expect there not to be dire consequences. This is the life of Saul. We're going to see Saul's life and David's life overlap here in the next couple of weeks. But before I give the invitation, I want to say again, there are two kings in every one of us. One king that says, do it your way, man. Who cares what everybody else says? One king that says, do what feels best. Protect yourself. Save yourself. Every man for himself. The biggest dog wins. Everybody does it. And then you've got the king, the heavenly king that sits on the, heart, sits on the throne of your heart. That's saying, no child, you trust me. You trust me, I'll elevate you in my time. I'll lead you beside still waters. I'll take care of you. I'll feed you. I'll be your shepherd. You don't have to make those foolish decisions. You don't have to cut people down. You don't have to destroy people. You don't have to be a character assassin. You just trust me that if you humble yourself, I'll exalt you in that time. You've got to trust that king. You've got to say, that's the king I've got to let reign on my heart. That's the king I've got to let control me. And that dual battle, it continues. Father, I pray that you move all across this room in Jesus' name. Lord, it's never fun to preach about sin. It's never fun to study men like Saul. But God, their lives are a stark warning to us. God, let us be grateful that You are willing to warn us and love us, Father. God, I'm very excited, Lord, as we begin to look at how You continued Your plan for David's life. God, how You're good and You're gracious and You make us and You mold us. God, Your, 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 your plan goes on for humanity. Lord, this morning, Your Word, as we look at Saul, it deals with sin in our hearts. I pray you move all across this room and finish, God, what you started in our hearts. 
So you thought you had to keep this up. All the 